We all do this. We all have this thing about us where we have our, our public persona and our private persona. And, and of course, we want it to be all the same. We do. We want it to be all the same. But there are things that happen in, in more intimate circumstances that are not fit for public consumption because we're broken. We're not perfectly consistent. Oh, I'm the same inside my house and outside my house. No, no, you're not. Nobody is. I mean, it's not just you. You're in, you're in a safe place, friends. <laughs> it's not just you that you've got this thing where you're like, I've got things about my life that I do not think I should be sharing publicly. Welcome to the brokenness of the human race. And so what, so, so what I'm saying is, the closer you are to someone, the better they know your patterns. Jesus said, don't judge your brother, right? In John, or Matthew chapter 7, don't judge your brother because in the standard you judge, it'll be judged to you. But then he says, you know, you, why do you seek out the little mite, the, little, the little, little chunk of sawdust, a little bitty piece in your brother's eye when you've got a, a log, a plank, a railroad tie sticking out of your eye? It's, you know, it's, it's crazy, but that, that's true. And why, why does the person think that way? Because we're blind to the log, because we don't see our thing. You know who does see the, the plank sticking out of your eye? Your wife, your brother, your sister, the people you're close with, your coworkers. It doesn't take long at all working side by side with someone to see their tendencies. Well, this is the story this person tells himself about himself, and this is the truth that I see. And I see the difference. And it's easy to see that in people. But it's especially easy to see in people that you work with, that you're close to. So what I'm saying is, because of the fall, the household things are the most difficult things. I think the disruption of household order from God's design, out of God's design into something that makes us more comfortable, explains the disruption of your civilization right now. Think about it. The only immorality is, is consent. If, you, if you're not a consenting adult, that's the only thing you can do that's immoral now. So in other words, sex is off the table as far as did God say he wanted us to do these things a certain way. See, we're in a crazy time where the, 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 the central things about household are completely disintegrated. And I'm not focusing on the family and saying we've lost, you know, we have, but I'm not trying to harangue that. I'm just saying the reason it's so broken and the reason our civilization is disintegrating is because we've lost the bead on these most difficult of relationships. And it gets down to... Um, a summary thought I want to to share with you. You men and women who are married, you have a blessing from God that often hurts. It's a painful blessing. It's like the gym. It's like like that road and those tennis shoes or those running shoes that, uh, that call to you and it hurts, but it's good for you. You have a, a spouse who sees your plank. You have someone that sees your patterns and you need to know about it. Jesus says, take out the plank out of your own eye before you try to help your brother with his. You've got someone that can say, hey, do you know this about yourself? It's very sanctifying, but it hurts because we have this story we tell ourselves about ourselves. So I'm just saying there is a sanctifying value to your spouse that you don't even think about because what it comes to you sometimes is they're criticizing me. They're talking down to me they're you know they're showing me all my stuff and they don't look at their stuff well that's how we all are but you've got a mirror 
that can be very helpful for you to see where it is you need to spend time with the Lord in prayer, perhaps, and telling the truth, telling the real story about yourself. Well, enter the filling of the Holy Spirit. These broken relationships because of proximity to sinfulness, these things are beautifully smoothed out and ameliorated, and you can actually enjoy the sanctifying effect of your spouse because you have the Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm talking about when I say spirit-filled marriage. Let's back up off of marriage and talk about the concept of spirituality. We are studying Christian spirituality. And I do think that most marriages, in, most Christian marriages don't even think about the spiritual side of marriage. But it's the whole thing. The whole game is you're loving God so you obey Him and therefore how you treat one another. That's the whole deal in marriage. And we don't think about that at all. We think about compatibility. Am I having fun? Am I enjoying myself? Am I being heard? These kinds of things. We don't think about God at all. And so this is the missing thing from Christian experience, the filling of the Spirit. And it's definitely the thing missing from Christian marriage. So I want to talk about what is the filling of the Holy Spirit. If I say the filling of the Holy Spirit in most churches in America, people get a a mystical cast to their mind. Their eyes sort of roll back a little bit. And they think that the filling of the Spirit has something to do with our feelings or one of these other things. And so here under bullet one, I'm saying there are some mistaken ideas about the filling of the Holy Spirit. The first is that it is how you feel. It is emotionalism. I just really didn't have any reason to feel this way, but all of a sudden I just had this feeling. And so we're trying to now to define the Scriptures in terms of our inner experiences. And that's going to be a mess. And I'll tell you one reason it's a mess is because language doesn't really get there. You can't really use language to do this. Um, there are things that you experience you can't really quite put your finger on. We don't, we don't have the categories to describe it. And so we want to get a, a handle on things. We're reading the Bible and say, oh, that, that must be the filling of the Spirit. That could be uh, the result of going running. If you, if you do it right... There's a good feeling that comes about from it, but it's more about hormones and endorphins than, uh, and, and cleaning, cleaning out your blood through some good cardio respiration. It's more about that than about God uh, being in there with you. And so I think feelings, making feelings the focal issue in the filling of the Spirit is a big problem, and I can't find it in the Bible. And that's my biggest issue. Forget my experiences or your experiences. Go to the scriptures. When he says be filled by the Spirit, he is not talking about how you feel. He's talking about what you say. He's talking about how you relate to God. He's talking about uh, your gratitude. And these are acts of communication. And I'm not saying feeling is not involved. I'm saying it's not primarily about feeling. The next thing people do with the filling of the Spirit is they think it's mysticism in terms of information. If I'm filled with the Spirit, then I become the oracle to know all truth. I'm now the oracle, and because the Spirit fills me, I get special information from God or special revelation apart from the apostolic scriptures. That would be mysticism. And I just, get a, I just feel that this is the answer. I just feel this is the thing I need to do. And um, I think that's a mistake because, again, the filling of the Holy Spirit is described in terms of how we communicate to one another, how we relate to God, uh, our attitude in all our household relationships of submission. The other thing that I think is straight, you know, completely missing from the scriptures is this concept of ecstatics. Ecstatics exist in all cultures. Ecstatics as a religious thing, it's a, it's a factor in all kinds of animistic religions, I'm told. 
And uh, my research has suggested, although I've never experienced it, but I'm told, hey, people get out of control themselves and jump around and, and do gibberish all the time without any mention of Christ or the Holy Spirit, because the truth is there are a couple things going on. We have the psychosomatic effects of the powerful brain that we don't really understand fully what it can do with our body, okay? Psychosomatic illness being one example. And, and there's a war on, and there are invisible powers that are opposed to God. And a lot of that animistic spirit religion stuff, I'm, I have no doubt, is rife with demon possession. But my problem with the ecstatics as spirituality or the filling of the spirit is that it is, by definition, a lack of self-control. But we know that the fruit of the spirit is self-control, right? See, if I'm spirit-filled, if I'm walking by the spirit in my marriage, then I want, feel like, desire in my flesh to say this. But I know in my thinking and in the work of the Spirit through the Word in me that I'm not supposed to say that because it's not the loving choice and it's not what God wants me to do by what His Word has said. And so I don't say, well, I just couldn't help it. I just had to say it. I, in the power of the Spirit, walk it back and say, I'm not going to say that. And I resist that temptation to sin and I don't give birth to sin even though there was this desire, there's this, this lust, this urge in me and I didn't submit to it. I submitted to God. You see, that's, that's the spirit-filled marriage idea in terms, by, by way of illustration. You can't ever blame God the Holy Spirit for your sin, and we can't blame him for loss of self-control when the fruit of the Spirit in Ephesians, sorry, Galatians 5 is self-control. I've got probably the most important statement in the notes here as far as what I have synthesized for this is about a third of the way down in the paragraph that says the truth about the filling of the Holy Spirit today. The truth about the filling of the Holy Spirit today. If you compile Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and you look at what's being said there, which we're about to do, the Holy Spirit exerts his influence. I've often seen it stated as control. I don't think the Holy Spirit controls you. I know, here's why. If you commit personal sin, it is not God's fault. And you can walk from I'm trusting in God and I'm walking by the Spirit to I'm committing personal sins, mental attitude sins or verbal sins. You can make that transition. It's kind of an invisible thing that happens in your heart with respect to personal mental attitude sins. But you can make that transition and it's not God's fault. Well, God didn't stop me. That's not the arrangement. The word I think better than control is influence. When you open yourself to God, he, he's there. Draw near to him, and he'll draw near to you. The heat is working slowly. Okay. Um, So my sentence, the Holy Spirit exerts his influence on our character. That's the inner person through his use of the word of Christ. That's Colossians 3.16. Let it richly dwell. When, he, when it richly dwells within us, the effects of this ministry are evident in our thoughts, words, and actions. You can see the effects of the filling of the Holy Spirit and how you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's an outcome of I'm really in the Word and I'm really walking in dependence on God that, that shows itself in how we think and speak and, and relate. And um, see, I don't believe that we're supposed to walk around wondering if we're saved. I think that's a big mistake for people to say, well, I don't know if I've been good enough. You haven't. Nobody is. 
I don't know if I've really believed enough. It's not the, the depth of your belief. It's the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross that brings you into the royal family of God. Faith alone, that is the one thing we do that results by God's grace in our new life, our regeneration. And so we're not supposed to doubt that. A lot of church history, a lot of theology has been presented as that's the thing. And we dangle Christians in New England in the colonial period. We dangle Christians like a spider over the flames of hell. I don't know how you get there, Jonathan Edwards, where you Christians I'm talking to are barely by, a, by just a spider's leg hanging over a fire, over the lake of fire. I don't know how he would say that because Calvinists believe that the elect are secure, except that they don't know if they're ever elect. Good Calvinists don't really know if they're elect and they've got to persevere to the end to see. I don't think we're supposed to live our lives looking over our shoulder and wondering if there are flames of hell behind us. I think what we're supposed to do is trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and build our hope completely on Him. And having done that, if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, now there is some contingency. Are you walking in dependence on the Holy Spirit? Are you living your life filled by the Word of Christ? And if, they, if you're not, then we should not see the effects described in Ephesians 5, 19, 20, 21. But if you are walking by the Spirit, you should have these results. You should seek them. And uh, I think the Spirit meets you there. So I believe the filling of the Holy Spirit is his influential work through the word on your character with its visible results. In Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, I've got my, my Greek and then my English translation. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit. I put that in blue on the sheet. The, the notes have it as blue, be filled by the Spirit, because I'm comparing it with the command in Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16 says, the word of Christ must, must dwell in you richly. So one command is a passive, be filled. The other is an active, but you receive the action. The word of Christ must dwell in you richly. Third person imperative. The result of the filling of the Spirit with the word of Christ is speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's in red on your sheet because I wanted you to see the exact same words between Colossians and Ephesians. So what Paul said in Ephesians was sufficient. What Paul says in Colossians is sufficient. But to build a a synthetic theology of the filling of the Spirit and understand all that Paul says about it, you can hear it in stereo and it does help. It does help round this category out. That God did want us to read both Ephesians and Colossians. I've had pushback before on doing this comparison. But well, Paul means he's in a different context in Ephesians than he's talking in Colossians. That's all true, but he's using the exact same words and the exact same grammatical construction of result. So, no, it's, it's not to, wrong to say he's talking about the same thing using different words. The Holy Spirit, God the third person, is using the word in you to change who you are in this moment. That's the idea. Friends, have you had the awakening where you've Actually, you've done the, the, the math. You've said, God told me to love and not worry about me, but worry about the other person and go to him and be really concerned for, for God's interest for the other person. Have you ever done this and found yourself doing it and saying, I am not really like this? I have. I've experienced this. I'm not bragging at all, except in the Lord. I'm not an altruistic person. And yet the work of the Spirit in me makes me capable of... Uh, for, for a time, letting go of myself and thinking about what the other person needs. That, that is Christian love. That is the work of the Spirit of God. And see, as this happens in you, um, 
I don't think it's something that we should not. So some people say, well, yeah, this is going on, but you shouldn't talk about it because it just naturally happens. I don't think it just naturally happens. It's commanded, it's taught in Scripture, and I think we need to tease these things out and think about them. Because, see, the alternative, you talk about spiritual, spirituality and the filling of the Spirit, all of a sudden we're, we're all emotional. But then when something happens where reality sets in and you have to love even though it hurts, well, you don't feel like it. Well, I just don't know where the Lord is. Well, the Lord is telling you to stop thinking you're in charge by your feelings and let him be in charge and listen to what he said. So Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, I've put the, the two verses, uh, two verses from Ephesians 5 and one from Colossians 3 to show you sort of in stereo that it's exactly the same discussion with a little bit different words, which help you round out the discussion. Uh, in Colossians, I think it's fascinating um, if the word of Christ is richly dwelling within you, then there ought to be with all wisdom teaching and admonishing yourselves with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Yourselves does mean one another in both passages. And gratitude singing in your hearts to the Lord. But see, there's this, this teaching component, this willingness. Who's comfortable admonishing me? <laughs> right? Guess what? I'm not comfortable admonishing you. Yeah, Jerry's good at it. I, <laughs> I'm not comfortable admonishing you. Hey, here's what I see. Trying to make sure the plank's out of my own eye. Here's the plank, but here's what I see. I'm very uncomfortable with those conversations. I think most people are. Even reasonable people. I mean, not me, but reasonable people are uncomfortable with these conversations. So um, let's move to the the question of marriage. Spirit-filled marriage. And that's on the back of the sheet there. What does the filling of the Holy Spirit have to do with marriage? Well, in 521, the result of the filling of the Spirit is submission one to another. Submit one to another. And so we're going to talk about the, the most um, egregious word outside of the context where we talk about homosexuality in the Bible, the word submission. Oh, oh no, here we go. We're going to be the knuckle-dragging um, troglodytes who insist that women submit to their husbands. Well, um, there are a couple of different ways to take that. And I want to tease that out with you a little bit and think that through what we mean by submission. My summary statement on theology under bullet two, under Roman numeral two, is we submit to God and conduct ourselves in our assigned role for his sake and in his power. That's what submission is about. It's about God. It always is about God. If your focus is on the other person to the exclusion of God, you're missing it. And this is easy to do especially in those painful relationships where I'm hurting and the other person's sins are so obvious and they're sinning against me. It's easy to focus on the other person, isn't it? And not to look at God at all, not to to zoom out a little bit and say, wait a second, God has me. He has her, he has him, he's got the situation. And so I, I go back to my stability and trusting him and looking at what he said and looking away into Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so th- this, is, this submission thing really is about you and God. Um, I would take you to Romans chapter 6, not today, but some other time. We've looked at it before, on submission. Submission described there as presenting yourselves to God. I'm here for you. I'm, I'm your creature. You're the creator. You have your way. This is what Jesus shows us in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. This is what he shows us in his incarnation. He humbled himself before the Father and did his will. All through the Gospel of John, he's saying, I'm not speaking my words, but the words my Father gave me to say. There is constantly this presentation that there is a higher authority, and then the person under that authority submits willingly to it, and that's us to God. It's baseline Christianity, and I think it's part of what the Spirit helps us with as we walk according to his word. But this is where the world is. The world is is shaking its fist at God. We don't want to submit to him. 
We don't want him to have his way. And we've got all kinds of excuses and reasons why. Well, if I submit to him, then this will happen. I can't do this thing that the Bible says because, well, you just don't understand what's going on in my personal life. And the answer is that you've made your circumstances and your perception of your needs more important than God's clear statements where you're supposed to trust him and then cross the Red Sea on dry land. See, you're in a situation, very often we're in a situation that it's impossible for us to, to see how this could be right. How, God, why did you bring us out here to kill us? In Exodus 14, he says, shut up. Stand still. Watch the deliverance of the Lord. And, and then they, they never thought, well, the Lord who controls all the water molecules can stack them up and let us walk across and then kill Pharaoh and his chariots with the water molecules. We never thought of that. Wow, that's really a novel uh, way of solving the problem. But that's the way, that's what the Bible presents, the great deliverances, is we don't know all the circumstances. We just know what God said, and so we trust him. And so submitting ourselves to God, submitting to God and conducting ourselves in our assigned role for his sake and his power is the filling of the Holy Spirit in the household. And wives can do this in their role, and husbands can do this in their role, and children are called, even children, I don't know if kids can learn that. Children are called to walk by the Spirit and how they obey their parents. And parents are to walk by the Spirit and how they, how they encourage and train their children. And masters and slaves. Even slaves and masters, when you find yourself in that most undesirable position of all history where some other human, a broken, sinful human, actually owns you. And you can say, well, that's, that's history. That's not going on in the present. That is going on in the present. And in my limited opinion the more we ask our government to decide for us if they'll only provide for us, the more we're asking to reassume the slave position that we climbed up out of after the Reformation in the, in the interesting history of, uh, of the American experiment. If the person makes all your decisions but provides all your needs, that, that to me is what slavery really means. I think, I think incarceration looks like this. The, the people in the cages, I think that's what, they're not making decisions for themselves, but all their needs are provided. Now, while they're not necessarily doing hard labor, this isn't, this isn't Alabama in the 60s or whatever. Well, or the, or the early 20th century, and the chain gangs and stuff. Okay, they're, they're not doing hard labor but they have no self-determination and they are not free see I, I think that's a form of slavery if you really think about what it means and so I didn't want to chase that rabbit too much we're going to talk about masters and slaves quite a bit in the study of spirituality but today I want to talk about marriage which really has nothing to do with masters and slaves <laughs> that's right man you're not enslaved to her that's right, ladies, you're not his servile slave. You're not his servant. He's supposed to get on his knees and don the towel like a servant and provide for your needs. That's, that's what headship looks like when Jesus teaches it. So, in other words, the way the world construes the battle of the sexes and what we would mean by submission of a wife to her husband, they have no real concept. The, the outside world has no real concept of this Christian conversation of husbands and wives. In fact, in, Galatia, sorry, in Genesis 3, when God hands out the curses, um, they're going to be stuck with the woman desiring to usurp her husband and uh, 
and the husband ruling over her, lording it over her. And that's not what Paul teaches at all. What Paul teaches is the spirit-filled alternative to that cursed situation. We submit to God and conduct ourselves in our assigned role for his sake and in his power. And now I want to talk about the assigned role for just a second. That's where we're controversial. I'm actually saying something that we all know, but we don't want to admit anymore. We all know that men and women are different. And they're not at all interchangeable. Now, all women are different from one another, but there are woman things that they all have in common. Same thing with men. We're all different. But there is a womanness and a manness, and we're made with different functions. We just are. And to rebel at the Creator and say, ah, I'm not what you made me, is silliness. Big, big picture. It's silliness, but it's tragic silliness. It's selling out something that's actually very beautiful. God made you the way He did because He wanted you to be what you are. And He made us with certain functions, certain roles that He wants us to conduct. So it's a bad word today. And I asked the question, what does submission really mean? Well, I looked up the word in Greek, and there's your, uh, by your chart there on the right side on that column, it says hupotasso or hupotage, from hupo and tasso. It's a very simple etymology. The origin of the word for submit is hupo, which means under. Hupo is under. And um, like hypoglycemic is low sugar, right? And hyperglycemic is high sugar. Hupo is under, and tasso is to put or to arrange or set an order. To set an order under. Ta-da! So I'm going to, this guy is going to submit to this guy. <laughs> it's to put under. That's, that's the etymology. Now you can't do that and then read that origin of the word into how it's used. You can't because it might be used in a different way. It may take on a new nuance. Um, over time. And uh, here, it doesn't mean just to place under, but it does mean, in general, to submit. It's used, uh, I believe, um, on my chart here, um, it was something like 46 or 48 times in the New Testament. And this shows you the spread through the New Testament on who says it, who uses it. My most interesting insight that I would point out to you, it's pretty small print, but if you look over on the left side of this chart, um, the first gospel that uses hupotasso is Luke. Matthew, Mark, and John don't use hupotasso, but Luke does. And after Luke, Romans and most of Paul's letters feature it, especially 1 Corinthians has a lot to say about submission, okay? Second uh, Timothy does not, but most of his letters do. And then Hebrews, James, and 1 Peter, so it's not just Paul. But Luke is supervised by Paul. Luke is written from a, a Pauline mission perspective to the, the Roman world. And he's under, he's working with Paul as he writes his gospel in Acts. And so um, uh, this is kind of a largely Pauline concept, okay? Maybe it is that this word, I mean, it's not only, the, not the concept, but the word, I should say. Maybe it is this, this word is communicating something to the Greco-Roman world that, um, but see, Peter and James use it too, so the, the Jewish Christian uh, community is, is hearing it as well. It just seems to be something that really Paul wants to emphasize um, as baseline Christianity. And I, I've been thinking about that, and here's what I summarize. We know more about the spiritual life after the sermon on, I'm sorry, after the, the upper room discourse in John 13 through 17. 
after John's teaching and 1 John, the spiritual life is pretty much, for the most part, emphasized by the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit and his work. Thank you. Mike just announced that we have uh, much to rejoice in, that Nell Manalakis has gone home to be with our Savior just now. Let's pray. Bless the Lord, Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Our God, we praise you for life and for timely death. We praise you for the life and love of Nell Manalakis, for her love of you and how she shared that with us. And also for her love of us. Father, we thank you for the testimony of the gospel that her life has represented these many years. For the opportunity you've given us to love you and how we've loved her and cared for her. For the memory that we will rejoice in and the hope of our reunion with her. But Father, most of all right now, I thank you that Nell is with Jesus Christ. Happier than she's ever been, ever. More aware of color and beauty than she could ever have imagined. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a good time to break. Uh, Y'all console one another. We'll get back together at um, 1030 for our communion service.